Alrighty, chaps, we are live. Let me start from context. Uh, share a bit of my story about where I came from. I grew up in rural South Africa to a wealthy family. I, uh, my parents were agnostic, and so I didn't grow up with any religion. Uh, so I would say cultural Christianity, but I never went to church. I just had Sunday school uh, at our primary school. And, uh, and I grew up very aristocratically. My father was very involved. Uh, he was a businessman. He was very involved in local politics. He was uh, at one stage, um, you know, the mayor of our little township and, uh, a counselor for the political party. Um, and he would hobnob with all the big shots and just a very politically involved guy. And I think I grew up with an aristocratic mindset of we're wealthy, we're well off, we're supposed to serve uh, those who aren't. Um, and I think therein was the seed of my socialism. And so I grew up with a very socialistic mindset, uh, at the same time a very nationalistic mindset, so a national socialistic mindset. Um, I remember in high school, uh, in history, for one of the essays, I wrote a grand plan on how we would annex uh, the South African uh, development, uh, the SADC, whatever you call it, the static block, but basically the annexing of the six, seven, eight countries to the north of South Africa uh, under a military uh, junta, myself being the supreme leader. Um, but I remember taking this very seriously as a teenager, um, this thing of there's a small elite who knows better and whose uh, obligation, whose noblesse oblige, it is to look after uh, the the poor and the the masses and I think that dream came to an abrupt halt because although South Africa at the time and still does have a nationalist socialist government I'm the wrong nation <laughs> I'm the wrong skin color uh, we have a pan-Africanist uh, nationalist group and what's interesting just an aside about that history uh, South Africa is an empire uh, started by the British in 1910 uh, of many different cultures uh, forced under one economic zone and uh, forced to conform to the British uh, legal tradition, the British culture um, and a bunch of crafty uh, Afrikaans lads uh, formed a brotherhood, the Afrikaner Bruderbund in the express goal of sub and capturing the institutions uh, of the empire. Uh, yeah. And so uh, that's, that's what happened. They, um, they got into the institutions, they infiltrated police, they infiltrated business, they infiltrated politics, they infiltrated academia, they infiltrated media um, very skillfully. And come 1948, uh, they won the election and gained control of the machinery of power. They gained control of the empire, which was subjugating all these other cultures, all these other tribes. And so they ruled for 40 years. And there was another uh, group, uh, a secret society, if you want to call it, uh, who were plotting their own ambitions from the early 1910s, 1920s, the ANC. They were a black nationalist, a pan-Africanist uh, Bruderbund, if you want to call it that, brotherhood. Uh, and they obviously couldn't infiltrate 
uh, media, business, banking, police, academia, because they were of the wrong color. There was race-based laws, right? So, so there was a, a clear delineation on color that prevented them from subverting. So they had to rely on open warfare, if you want to call it that. Uh, obviously not open warfare in the field because uh, they had no army. So they resorted to guerrilla tactics and terrorist tactics. And so there were bombings. Uh, there were uh, infrastructural uh, attacks uh, over a period of 30-odd years. Um, and the Afrikaners never lost a battle, but they lost the cultural war. They lost control of, of the media narrative. Uh, and we saw this in the Spanish War, which is very interesting, the Spanish Civil War. The Republicans spent five times the budget of the military on media, on propaganda, on newspaper pieces, on getting the message out there that their cause is glorious, they are righteous, uh, and that the nationalists are evil. The nationalists uh, bombed Guernica, open destruction, destro you know, just atrocities and almost accusing them of the atrocities that they were themselves committing. Uh, but it worked, you know, to this day, Franco, uh, his name is very, uh, synonymous with evil. Uh, the bombing of Guernica is still, uh, the narrative carries on with, with what they, how they framed it. Um, and so the same thing happened in South Africa with the ANC conducting a guerrilla war with massive internationalist outside propaganda, uh, machinery. Um, so 1990 comes, there's uh, uh, the slow transition of we don't want war anymore. This is basically the Afrikaners were demoralized and they lost hope. This is why you never black pill, right? So there's a huge uh, uh, vote that uh, we're going to unban uh, the ANC. And 1994 comes, and of course, demographic kick in and it's a landslide win for the the ANC uh, and they come into power over the machinery of the empire right so three dispensations a an anglo nationalist dispensation an africana nationalist dispensation and now an african nationalist dispensation have ruled the empire of south africa and um i was born into the midst of that transition so it meant i was of the wrong color i was now where the ANC were, I was now unable to enter into the halls of government or power or authority or influence because I was of the wrong color. Um, and so my, my socialist dreams, my nationalist socialist dreams were shattered. Uh, and of course, what's the next progression is libertarianism. So libertarianism is primarily a white religion a white defense mechanism against multiculturalism, against Marxism. It basically says to the white man, you have no power, you have no institutional ability. So go find a cabin in the woods, screw everybody else, protect yourself, uh, and just hope that, you know, they eat you lost. That's libertarianism, right? Libertarianism works great if you are in a libertarian society, i.e. a white society, right? So you can afford to go to New Hampshire, which is 95% white, 
and be a libertarian. Why? Because pretty much the culture there is a libertarian culture. Leave, leave everybody else alone, do your own thing, look after yourself, be a good member of society. In a multicultural society, it doesn't work that way. People don't leave you alone. You go and have your cabin in the woods. Well, now they're going to come and steal stuff from your cabin. Now they're going to come and destroy your cabin. Now they're going to come and call you a racist. Like you can't escape. So, but I didn't know this at the time. So libertarianism allows you to say, I have principles, uh, non-aggression principle, uh, because you don't want to fight because you know, you're outnumbered 10 to one, probably a hundred to one. So well, I don't want to fight. Uh, yes, I'm a libertarian. I, I don't aggress on people and just leave me alone, please. And you know, it's very easy pickings for Leninists, for Marxists, because they're so skillful. They are so politically skillful. Uh, I admire them, actually. And so um, a lot of my high school friends, a lot of my church friends, a lot of my sports friends uh, who are black um, over the years started becoming card-carrying communists. And it was very fascinating for me to see the the shift Um you know, from this rainbow nation, multiculturalism is great, diversity is our strength, uh, make South Africa work, forward, onward South Africa. You know, I, I would get very angry at any white guys who left for whiter pastures because I was like, you're betraying the rainbow. You're betraying the vision. Uh, we've got to make this thing work. But inadvertently, I was... I was blind to my own nationalism that was an inherent, right? The inherent nationalism is like, in order to have a civilization, we need as many white guys as possible. In order to have a working society, we need as many white guys as possible. And so when a white guy leaves, that's bad. Not because I'm racist, but because they're leaving me to be the last white guy. Man, what if I'm the last guy? And so this very interesting thing happens of trying to justify your... Uh, your libertarian positions while pushing down or, or, you know, trying to avoid your nationalistic, uh, the logic that's right in front of you of what's happening of all these Leninists are attacking me because I'm white. Uh, I have no institutional power because I'm white and I will never have any institutional power because I'm white. Um, and no amount of logic, no amount of negotiation will ever get me institutional power. And so um, that was my libertarian days, a, a defense mechanism against helplessness. It's like, if I'm going to be helpless, I'm at least not going to be called a racist while doing it. Um, and then I went to America. I went backpacking and worked on a few farms. And, and it was the first time in my life being in a majority white society. Um, and it was amazing. And... Uh, you know, for the first time in my life, I would go through my day where everyone I bumped into, I could speak to. And we all had very similar worldview and morality and expectations. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And like, people didn't lock their doors at night and everyone could own a gun. And business, you just you just phone someone up or you go on Facebook Marketplace or like like things just happen that I've never seen. Is this civilization? Um, you know, and, and the cops you can be friendly with them and they that's the neighborhood cop or that's the neighborhood sheriff. And if you know, everyone's happy and polite and it's like, Whoa, this is amazing. And I became a nationalist 
you know, because I was like, whoa, I'm around my people. I'm around my people. And there's this amazing feeling of, for the first time in your life, realizing that you're good, your people are good. Not in the sense of, now this is where all the Christians jump on the bandwagon. No one's good. Everyone's a wretch. Everyone's a sinner. It's like, dude, shut up. I'm talking in the sense of, I love my people. No one's going to say to their family, to their child, my little son is a wretch. My wife is a wretch. Like, get out of here, man. Like, that's just dick. I'm saying this because I love my people. And so, yes, we all need the gospel. We need to understand. We need to understand what Jesus did for us. That he came that we would not be condemned. That by the eating of his blood and the drinking, eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood, that we would be free from condemnation. And so here's where we get into some really interesting fields, right? Is that in America right now, we are heavily enslaved to the gospel of grievance, right? Jesus, if you believe that Jesus came to free me from grievance, free me from condemnation, right? I, I can have no grievance because he says, forgive, right? Forgive. That's why I'm, I'm so free. You know, I had a lot of hatred in my heart towards uh, friends of mine, black guys who became communists. I had a lot of hatred in my heart uh, towards the ANC government. I had a lot of hatred in my heart towards uh, my parents' generation who uh, sold out. I had a lot of hatred in my heart uh, towards the church who would not address uh, really logical issues right up, right up in our faces. And I was able to just release all of that and have forgiveness. Why? Because God is my vindicator. Jesus sees me in secret and he rewards me openly, right? It's not up. It's not on me to take vengeance, right? It's not on me to take vengeance. That's God, right? So I'm free. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, okay, now you have to invite them all over for tea and pretend that we're best friends again. That's not, that's not forgiveness. That's, that's weird abuse. That's abuse, uh, abuser love, like Stockholm syndrome stuff. No, I, I very clearly cut those people out of my life. Like I will have nothing to do with them. I bless them but I will have nothing to do with them. I've forgiven them. I've released them. I'm so free. Like this used to churn me up. Like this used to cut me up. I would lose sleep over these friends. Uh, and now I'm free, like so free because I can't have grievance. The moment I have grievance on someone, that's the parable where uh, that guy, uh, the king uh, forgives him of his debt. And uh, he goes and he finds the other servant who owes him like one cent and he beats him up or sends him to jail. And he's like, I want, I want my money back. I want my money. And the King finds out about this. And he then puts that servant into jail to rot. And he's like, you need to understand that if you cannot forgive others, my father in heaven cannot forgive you of your sins. And it's like, Whoa, like, okay, we have to get this thing that grievance is a sin. Grievance was the original sin in the garden. Eve had grievance towards Adam, towards God. Why can't we eat from any tree? It's like, no, you can't eat from this one tree. God said, and if God is good, see, this is the next thing you have to believe, is God good? If God is good, then I don't need to have grievance because God will provide. God will promote. God will protect. Like, you know, I don't like a lot of things that happen in my life. 
And you have to, you have to ask the question like, all right, Lord, is this something that I'm causing? And if not, is it something that I am, you know, am I meant to endure this and just know that you're going to vindicate me somehow that I don't understand? That's the, the place where you get away from grievance. And so right now, the media is just a grievance peddling machine. Academia is a grievance grooming machine. You know, so, so we are every day inundated with, if you're black, you must have grievance towards whites. If you're a woman, you must have grievance towards men. If you are uh, poor, you must have grievance uh, towards the rich. And so grievance in our hearts just wells up into this thing of like, I am, I am going to be God. I'm going to come and vindicate and take vengeance. And so, you know, just being released of all of that allows you to really think now in a, in a different frame. So if you're a Christian, boom, no grievance, right? But this is where the enemy comes in and they're like, all right, Christians, I know that you're not allowed to have grievance. I know that you're the nice guy. So we're going to just keep abusing you. And that's where nationalism comes in. It's like, nope, you're not, you're not abusing us either. I can quite happily build a wall, cut you off. And it's like, you need to behave in order to come to my house. You, you know, I don't let someone who abuses my wife near my wife. It's like, nope, cut off. You don't get to come in here. Uh, I don't let someone who says, hey, I hate you. Uh, you're despicable. Uh, oh, by the way, let me in your house. Sorry, like not going to happen. In fact, you come in my house, going to be some trouble. That's what nationalism is saying, right? My take on this is, is nationhood for every tribe and tongue, Christ for every nation, right? It says the nations will bow down, all right? It says in Acts that God has enacted uh, boundaries and borders and times and that people will seek God within their people group, within their nation to find God there, okay? So we're at this place now where we are in the aftermath of, yeah, I just feel like everything's come to a boil. Yesterday was a, yeah, just like a, I feel like yesterday was some of the boil overflowing the pot, as it were. The stove is still on, the water's still boiling. Here's the deal with how Marxists operate, right? So, so yeah, let me contrast America right now to South Africa. South Africa, clear race delineation. Uh, if you're if you're black, you're for the revolution. Uh, if you're white, uh, you're either a um, compliant or against. And then even after the changeover, it's like now all whites are against. And in order to prove you're not against, you have to be actively compliant. This is where anti-racism comes in, right? Of it's not enough just to not be racist. You have to actively be anti-racist. And so in America, how this differs is that it's a predominantly white country. And the communists are not black. The communists are of all color, uh, predominantly um, redacted. And so the problem for us is the feeling of, but you're my guy, so I'll let you in. So there's no institutional gatekeeping, right? The Afrikaners were very good at institutional gatekeeping. If you're black, you don't get to be a teacher. If you're black, you don't get to be a cop. If you're black, you don't get to be a banker. If you're black, you don't get to be a, gov a governor. And 
unfortunately in America, the subversion, you know, it's like fellow white people. So what happens is you get to this place of incredible subversion. Uh, McCarthy, he started coming out in the sixties with a theory that like, well, the fifth column, the, uh, the, the Marxist school has infiltrated government has infiltrated academia has infiltrated media banking etc um and he was laughed out of out of town and you know basically died in shame uh but he's been proven right because we now have a university system that is expressly grievance-based we now have a media system that is expressly grievance-based and um our our justice system is expressly grievance-based and so we get to the place now where in America, people who are nationalists have, again, outside of their own businesses and churches, zero institutional power. And so here's where we come to this place of not blackpilling, right? How do you not blackpill? There is a responsibility on us to build institutional power and exert authority to take dominion over culture. You know, and this again is where a lot of Christians will get off the bus and be like, man, I'm, I'm petrified of the word dominion. I'm petrified of taking responsibility. Uh, Jesus is going to come back. Just Jesus is going to come back. Um, and I think that's been our problem for the last, you know, 20 generations is, well, I, I don't have to do anything because Jesus is coming back. Um, I'm not going to do anything because Jesus is coming back. Whereas for me, I'm like, yeah, Jesus is coming back to reign on this earth. And so I'm going to get to work, right? I want to be one of the men called faithful who gets to govern over 10 cities. And so that means I get to work now in this life. And, um, you know, those guys who are just like, oh, Jesus is coming back, man. Like, you're not going to get a reward, dude. You went and hid. You went and hid your talent. You went and hid your uh, influence. You went and hid your life. Gave your family over to the state gave your life over to debt. So here's the, here's the white pill. Here's the way through. It's not to uh, sit and watch news and try and figure out which conspiracy is right, which prediction is going to come through. It's get out of debt, get out of debt. Debt is what destroys our ability to speak. It destroys our ability uh, to be responsive to God. It destroys our ability uh, to not fear, right? Debt gets you into a wage cycle because now you need to service the debt. So you need a consistent income. Once you're in a wage cycle, that's increased, uh, slavery because now you definitely can't say things that your employer disagrees with. Otherwise you get fired or blacklisted or whatever. We need to get out of debt. All right. And then number two is we need to get out of wage slavery. So I'm, Jobs are not bad. Employment is not bad. I'm very thankful for the jobs I've had in my life. What I'm saying is we need control of our economic institutions. We need economic institutional power. If you can sell your own product, sell your own service, sell your own skill, please do start doing that. Even on the side, like carry on working your job. If you have to work your job, carry on saving money, carry on getting out of debt, but start trying to own your own economy, uh, own your own house economy your household economy, right? Grow your own food, uh, your own energy, your own waste. Uh, deal with your own uh, inputs into your life uh, and really take ownership of your economy. Um, 
And then the next thing uh, is, you know, church. I think a lot of uh, men are yearning for fellowship with courageous men, with strong men. And unfortunately, a lot of our church experience has been politically correct, right? Because you're trying to, you're trying to keep as many people united and filling the pews as possible. And so you can't be direct. You can't be straight. You can't be honest. Um, and so with church, I think a lot of times it's, you know, again, it's good to go to a church on Sunday. It's good to have a local church. Um, but I would say more than that, try and have fellowship with strong men. You know, try and find strong men online in real life uh, and encourage each other. And, you know, so one of the the, the biggest uh, weapons, I, I'm a solitary guy by nature. I like to be alone. I like to just have time uh, to do what I want to do. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not in the sphere of party everywhere. Let's get together. The more people, the merrier. Uh, definitely not my, my skill set. But I can see that there is a huge weapon in keeping men isolated from each other. You know, keeping men thinking they're the only one. You know, Elijah, God, am I the only one? And now they're trying to kill me. And God says to him, no, dude, 7,000. 7,000 more who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You know, so I just want to encourage you guys. There are 7,000 more men than you think. 7,000 times more men than you think who are just like you. And so I'm just super encouraged. I think that whatever we go into over the next couple of weeks, um, I think there's another parallel for you with South Africa. A lot of guys are like, well, what's the point of doing business? What's the point of anything if we're going to have civil war tomorrow? What's the point of getting out of debt if we're going to have civil war tomorrow? Marxists are great when they don't have power of forcing hot conflict, right? They force hot conflict. It's the only way they can get into power. Once they get into power, they avoid conflict. They avoid conflict. They avoid conflict. It's death by a thousand cuts. It's boil the water. And so in South Africa, you know, guys have been talking civil war every couple months since 1990. You know, that's 30, 30 years now. Hey, we're going to have a civil war. Hey, we're going to have a 30 years later. Hey, we're going to have a civil war. And if you didn't build a business, if you didn't build a family, if you didn't get out of debt, 30 years comes and you've got nothing to show for it, but a ton of grievance, a ton of bitterness. And not only for the enemy, but now for all the guys who didn't do something uh, when you were ready to roll. So that's my, my encouragement to you is, is these Marxists are going to avoid conflict at all costs because they don't want a war. They know that they get beaten. They get beaten at, at, at war. And so I have a feeling this thing is going to drag out and drag out and drag out. And if we just sit around and wait for the hot conflict, I don't think it's going to come. What, what will come is institutional conflict, right? Get your churches truthful. Get your business strong. Get out of debt, right? Get your children strong. Get your marriage strong. Get your fellowship strong. Um, you know, I, I think there's a... Uh, a lot to learn from the Marxists. They're brilliant. They're brilliant at subversion. They're brilliant at po political organization, right? And they'll do anything to win. They're, they are, they are rabidly faithful to their cause, to their religion, you know? And so now for us as Christian nationalists, are we willing to match that? Are we willing to spend our lives building, you know, cause they, they spent 30, 40 years, maybe two, three generations 
subverting something uh, that they would never see the fruits of. You know, right now the fruits are showing, but there's tons of old Marxists and socialists who never saw this day. In South Africa, tons of socialists and Marxists who never got to see uh, the Rainbow Nation. Are we as Christian nationalists willing to put in the generational long game? You know, are we willing to get out of debt, build up institutional power, get run our friends and, and our churchmates for every elected office and every every bureaucratic opening? You know, that's it's it's a local scale ground game over a long period of time. That's how that's how you dominate a culture. Um, and I, I think the final thing is the Marxists know uh, that, you know, salvation for them, uh, the only way for a white person to get salvation is to die. You know, it's like, what can I do as a white ally? Die, kill yourself. That's the only way. Whereas for us, we're offering a message of hope. We're offering a message of practical game plan out of hell, out of civilizational decline. And so do we pray for a Franco? Yes, we pray for a Franco. Uh, are we ready if that happens? Yes, that's great. We must be ready. But don't neglect the generational long game, the day-to-day civilizational building blocks in your local community. God bless you guys and have a wonderful day.